Before we uh, read the Word of God and begin studying it this morning, I'd like to just have a word of prayer. And uh, once again, ask the Lord uh, to magnify Himself through His Word. So let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, again, we, we come to you in prayer. Lord, first of all, we'd like to, we'd like to confess that many times we fail to truly worship you as we ought to. Times we fail to walk in the Spirit. And so we end up fulfilling the lusts of our flesh. And for those sins and failures, Lord, we need your mercy. Forgive us, Lord. Help us today to worship you with all of our hearts and to walk according to the Holy Spirit that we would demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives today and in our fellowship. Lord, I pray that you would magnify yourself through your word this morning, that no one else would receive glory but you, and that you would, Lord, be pleased to take your word and to drive it home into our hearts in a way that is new and fresh to us today. And you will receive the praise and the glory as we lift up your name for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 55 is a very powerful portion of Scripture to read and think about. I've had the privilege to do that this week, all week long. And I can say that Isaiah 55 has been a blessing to me and has had an impact on me this week as I have meditated on it. And I hope to be able to share that with you just a little bit. We're continuing our series that I've entitled Building a New Testament Church. And you might puzzle yourself a little bit and wonder why it is that if we are talking about building a New Testament church, why it is that we would go to an Old Testament book uh, to, to identify principles for the New Testament church. But I think that it will become clear to you as we go along in this chapter. Isaiah 55 is really the end of an entire section of Isaiah's uh, prophecy. The section really begins in chapter 40. The 15 chapters that lead up to chapter 55 deal with God's promise to remain faithful to His people, the nation of Israel, in spite of their idolatry and their wickedness. His love and His mercy will continue even after they go into exile as punishment for their sins. And His, his promise is that He will restore them to the land of Canaan. But more than that, the Lord promises to redeem His people, not just from physical bondage, but from their slavery to sin. 
It's in these chapters of Isaiah that we're introduced to a key figure of the book of Isaiah. He's called the servant of the Lord. We see him bringing truth and justice to the whole earth, both Jews and Gentiles. We see him bearing their reproach and overcoming the enemy. He is the exalted king who is also despised and rejected of men. He is acquainted with grief and yet is satisfied to see the labor of his soul. He's cut off from the land of the living and yet he divides the spoil with the strong. Those last parts of the description really come from Isaiah 53 primarily. And they may appear to be contradictory. We've dealt with Isaiah 53 before. The description of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and then in Isaiah 53 seems to be contradictory. How can he be cut off from the land of the living and yet divide spoil with the strong? How can he be the exalted king and yet be despised and rejected of men? Of course, all of this is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What we find in these chapters of Isaiah is that God has promised to cleanse his people's sin. And he's promised to bless them in spite of their rebellious nature. Now you might ask the question, how is this possible? How can God be a good and honest judge if he treats his people this way? How can he? How can he bless them? How can he promise to restore them and to exalt them and to glorify them? when they are so evidently corrupt and wicked and idolatrous. Because His servant will bear their reproach. He will suffer for their sins. And of course, that is, we know exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Some 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words. But what's interesting then is what happens next. Because in Isaiah 54, we find the Lord encouraging the people of Israel to expand their tents in anticipation of the redemption that He promises. In anticipation of the covenant of peace which He says He's going to make with them and it will never be removed. Because of what Messiah will do, Israel will be reunited with the Lord, her husband. And she will be exalted and blessed with peace. Isaiah 54 is a call to faith in God's Word. And to act on that faith for the nation of Israel. Expand your tents 
Why? Because God is about to bless you and you need room for the blessing. That's what he's getting at. Believe God's promise and act on your faith. Do something tangible. By the way, Peter preaches really basically the same message to the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. Peter says, repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the, uh, from the presence of the Lord, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. The message of the gospel preached to the Jewish people. But is the message of the gospel only for the Jews? Well, that's where Isaiah 55 comes in. This is the beauty of the book of Isaiah. Maybe when we get done with Psalms, we'll just go to Isaiah, because I'm I'm, I like this study. It's been kind of fun. I wouldn't mind going through it. But anyways, I digress. Isaiah 55 deals with this question. After God has invited Israel to believe and to act on his promise of forgiveness and of blessing, he then extends the same invitation to the nations. So let's read what he says in the first five verses of Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear. And come to me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call on a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. This is what I call the invitation to come. The invitation to come. But I want you to notice something right off the bat. Right there in verse 1. It's a question. Who is invited? Who is invited? Can you tell me? Look at verse 1. Someone tell me. Who is invited to come? Everyone? Who is invited to come? The thirsty. The thirsty are invited to come. Those who know they are not satisfied, and yet they want to be satisfied. There's no other condition, no other qualification given here. There's no no national origin, no ethnic background, no skin color, no sex, no age, no discrimination of any kind. None of these things are an issue. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how much money you're worth. None of those things matter. 
If you're thirsty, then come. If you're thirsty. The invitation is for all people who recognize that they have a need. A hunger in their soul which they cannot seem to satisfy. Here's another question we're confronted with then. What is offered? What is he offering here? Well, notice the first thing he says, come to the waters. Come to the waters. Drink and have life. See, water is essential for life, isn't it? Can we live without it? No. You cannot live without it. It's not possible. Absolutely essential. You must have it. So he says, listen, if you're thirsty, come to the waters. But this is what's really interesting. Because there's more. He says, come to the waters. Come by wine and milk. Well, wine and milk are better than water alone. Would you agree? Wine and milk are better than water alone. Water is enough for life. It's a minimum requirement. No one has to have wine and milk to survive. But, is not life enriched by those things? Are they not abundance and blessing? Do they not bring joy? Yes, they do. Do they not bring abundance? Yes, they do. So wine and milk represent joy and abundance of good things. The invitation is given. You who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come by wine and by milk. But what's most incredible about this first verse is he says you can come and buy all of these things without money and without price. And so we have to ask this question. What's the cost? What's the cost of these things? If you're thirsty, you're invited to come and buy water and wine and even milk. Don't you have to have money to buy things? (laughs) I try to teach my kids this lesson. You have to have money to buy things, right? You can't walk in the store and say, I want that. Well, that's nice that you want that, but you have to have money to buy it. And when you don't have money, you can't buy it, right? (coughs) Generally speaking, that's true. And yet he says, come. And buy these things without money, without price. For these things are not bought with money. See, what did I say earlier? What is the condition that has to be met? There's one condition. You have to be thirsty. That's it. You don't have to have money. He's not just giving them away, though. That's the other thing that's interesting here. He's not giving them away. 
He says, you who have no money, come buy and eat. So what's the cost? What's the cost? Well, first of all, you need to know this. It's not nothing. I know that may not be good grammar, but it doesn't matter. It's not nothing. The cost of this is not nothing. Don't think that God will just give life and joy and blessings out for free. Nothing is free. Nothing is free. We know that, right? Nothing is free. Everything costs someone something. If that's not vague enough for you. (laughs) Here's the key. It's not nothing, but it's nothing to you. The invitation, come, buy water, wine, milk. You don't have to bring money. You don't even have to have money. Just come if you're thirsty and buy water, wine, and milk without money and without price. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, has already paid the price by suffering your punishment when He died on the cross. So that you can have life. Eternal life. Abundant life. Joyful life. Even though you have no means to pay for it. That's all in verse 1. Then he goes on to verse 2. And in verse 2, there's a very important question that's asked. It's this. Why do you waste your life on things which cannot satisfy? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Anybody ever tried to eat not bread? He says, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread. Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? See, this is the question. Why do you waste your life on things that cannot satisfy? When your life is over and you have nothing to show for all of your pursuits and you pass into eternity hungry and unsatisfied, isn't it reasonable to ask, why would you waste your life? Especially when the Lord Himself offers you water and wine and milk without money and without price. You can work and you can toil to have money and possessions, but no matter how much you have, it will never be enough. But the second half of verse 2 is important. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good let your soul delight itself in abundance this is the first hint that he's talking about something other than food and other than drink right Up to now, he's just been talking about food and money and drink. But all of a sudden, he introduces this idea. Listen carefully to me, he says. Of course, what this implies is that the food and drink that he's speaking of are actually his word. 
This is reinforced in verse 3. When he says, come to me. But what does come to me mean? Incline your ear. Hear, and your soul shall live. Bow your ear to me. Listen. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God which gives life. It's the Word of God that satisfies. And He even points back to a specific promise of God. In the second half of verse 3, He says, Incline your ear. Hear, and your soul shall live. And he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. This is a reference to the Lord's covenant with David. Uh, We find it, first of all, in 2 Samuel 7. We're not going to turn there. um, But you can turn with me, if you will, over to the book of Acts. Keep your finger in Isaiah 55. Acts chapter 13. Because in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul cites this passage in Isaiah. He cites Isaiah 55 and verse 3 as proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is important. So notice what Paul says in Acts 13, verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. What has He fulfilled? Verse 32 tells us the promise that was made to the fathers. He says he's fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm chapter 2. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. I don't know about you, but when you read what he says there in Acts 13 and verse 34, does it seem obvious to you that the phrase, I will give you the sure mercies of David, is proof that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead no more to return to corruption? What is the sure mercies of David? Well, the covenant that God made with David, part of that covenant was the promise that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, his burial, and then his resurrection, is the only person, the only man who can sit on that throne forever. He's the only son of David who can sit on the throne of David and rule and reign forever in fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. The sure mercies of David is the guaranteed promise of God that David's son, who would be Messiah, would sit on his throne forever. Solomon didn't do that. No, it's Jesus Christ who will do that. And so the Apostle Paul says that what Isaiah was talking about was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says that Isaiah is giving us proof. The sure mercies of David. That God would raise up Jesus Christ. 
And of course, Isaiah speaks of that then again, continuing in verses 4 and 5. Given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. This is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who is to be a ruler over Israel. The end of verse 5, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. The Messiah would rule over Israel and would glorify them for one purpose, to make Israel a beacon to the nations. That's what he's talking about in the first part of verse 5. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Israel, you will become a beacon and the light of the gospel will shine out to the nations and they will run to you. Why? Because the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, will glorify you. The Messiah will sit on the throne of David and the gospel will go out to all nations. That's what Isaiah is talking about. The invitation will go out not just to Israel and not just to Judah, but to all nations through Israel's Messiah. And what is the invitation? If you're thirsty, come. If you're thirsty, come and buy water and wine and milk with no money and no price. Have life and joy and abundance of blessings. Because Jesus has paid it all. This is the invitation of the gospel. It's the invitation that we proclaim in this church to all who will listen. The question is, why do you waste your life on things which cannot satisfy? If you're thirsty, come to the Lord. Listen to His Word and be satisfied in Him. And He's not done yet. He continues in the next verses, and it's very, very important that we see what He says in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. There's a sense of urgency here that's found in verse 6 especially. There's a window of opportunity in which you may respond to the invitation that He has given. You need to seek Him now. You need to call on Him now while He is near. There will come a day when He will no longer be found. There will come a day when He will not answer those who cry out to Him. So it's urgent that you respond to Him today. This is the response. We have to answer a question before we can Respond. Three times in verse 1. And again in verse 3, he says, come. But here's the question. How are we to come to the Lord? How does this work? How is it possible 
How can we do it? Is it by, by coming forward during an invitation at the church? Come forward and receive Christ. We say that sometimes in churches. Is that what it is? Is that the invitation? Come and pray and ask Jesus into your heart. Is that the invitation? Come and get baptized. Come and join the church. Are these the invitation? No. I think that verse 7 indicates that it is much more difficult than that. It is much more challenging than that. You say, well, what do you mean more challenging than that? Anybody can walk down an aisle. Anybody can repeat after me. Anybody can get baptized. Anybody can join a church. No, verse 7 tells us what this is really about. You see, it's the wicked who may have mercy. It's not the moral. It's not the good. It's not the religious. You see that in verse 7? He speaks to the wicked, to the unrighteous. These are the ones who may receive mercy. Of course, there's a parallel to verse 1. It's the thirsty who may come. It's not the quenched. It's the thirsty. The wicked man knows he's wicked. He does. He may not want to admit that, but he knows he's wicked. The unrighteous man knows that his thoughts are polluted. Do you know? Do you know that you're wicked? Do you admit that your thoughts are unrighteous? I mean, clearly, in addressing the wicked man and calling him wicked here, there's the assumption that he admits that he's wicked. That the unrighteous man owns up to the fact that he's unrighteous. How can the wicked forsake his way if he doesn't first admit that he's wicked? How can the unrighteous man turn from his thoughts if he doesn't admit that his thoughts are unrighteous? You have to admit that you're unrighteous. That's the first step toward receiving mercy, being and knowing who you are. And here's the second aspect that he touches on in this verse. It's this. Do you hate your sin? This is one point that gets overlooked a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. You see, it's not enough to admit that you're a sinner. Even the devil knows he's a sinner. In fact, he's pretty good at it, and I think he's proud of it too. Lots of people know they're sinners. They practice it every day. They perfect the art But it's when you hate your sin. When you don't want to follow the wicked way anymore. When you don't want to entertain those unrighteous thoughts anymore. That's when you may seek the Lord. That's when you may find the Lord. But why would anyone who is wicked want 
to find the Lord. You ever thought about that? If you were a, if you were a criminal and you had committed a, a bank robbery, let's say, and the police had investigated and they found out who you were and they found out the information that was necessary to, 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 to charge you with a crime and the district attorney charged you with a crime and the judge swore out a warrant for your arrest. Okay. And they're, and they're going to come and arrest you. And so you're a wanted criminal. Would you go looking for a police officer? Would you, would you go trying to find the nearest police station? Would you say, I better go find the judge? See, that's not how criminals operate, is it? They don't walk into the jail themselves, do they, Vito? Hey, but... Why would a wicked person who knows that he's wicked and a sinner, why would he go looking for the Lord? Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Well, I would suggest to you there's one thing that makes it different, and it's found here in verse 7. He says... The wicked man forsake his way. The unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Return to the Lord. And, notice, he will have mercy on him. Return to our God. Why? He will abundantly pardon. Here's the question then, or the third aspect. Do you believe in God's mercy? You see, the only reason that a condemned man would seek out the executioner is if he believed, if he knew that a pardon was truly offered, right? It's the only reason that a condemned man would seek out his executioner is if he knew there was a pardon on the table. Do you know there's a pardon on the table? See, this is what the wicked, the ungodly, the sinner must realize that God has offered a pardon. But why is it that wicked men and women, why is it that they don't turn to the Lord? Why is it that men and women across our city and our county are not flocking to hear the gospel and fall down at their feet and cry out to the Lord? For mercy and pardon. No. Maybe they refuse to admit they're wicked, but I think that they know they're wicked. Probably they don't hate their sin. Some of them do, though. I bet you know some. I bet you know some who are wicked and ungodly, immoral people, and they hate. They hate themselves. And they hate their life. And they hate the things that they do and the hurts and the injuries and the broken relationships and all of the things. They hate it. And they're miserable. But they don't believe that the judge has written out a pardon for them. And so, they don't seek the Lord. Because they don't believe in God's mercy. Now, I'll admit, the mercy of God seems to defy reason. 
Why would God, why would God say, you who are wicked, you who are corrupt, you who are polluted, you who are unrighteous, you who are ungodly, you who are rebellious, immoral, idolaters, why would God say to you, come to me and I will forgive your sin? I'll be merciful to you and I will pardon you. Why would God do that? That doesn't make any sense. That defies all reason and all logic. If you're guilty, the judge must condemn your sin. Well, that's why he continues in verses 8 through 11. Actually, I guess I have verses 8 through 13 here, all the rest of the chapter. Notice what he says. God anticipates this objection. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy, and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the invitation defended. Because it just seems too good to be true. We all know that if something seems too good to be true, that's because it is too good to be true, right? Our mothers told us that, right? Somebody told us that. Hey, if it seems too good to be true, that's because it is too good to be true. Run the other way. But in this case, there is there's something we have to consider. Here's a question for us to consider. Who is giving you this invitation? Who is it? Anybody? The Lord, right? God. He is giving us this invitation. Another question then kind of comes to mind. If the Lord is the one giving the invitation, then what do you know about His thoughts and His ways? Well, I think we know two things, at least. And these are not going to be, like, this is not going to be earth-shattering. These are very simple and direct. First thing you know about this is that his ways and his thoughts are higher, not lower than yours. See, one of the objections that we have to this is, well, it doesn't make sense. It violates logic for God to offer mercy and pardon to guilty sinners. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. But the objection is really, what we're really saying is that God's way is, it's, it's, it's kind of silly. It's nonsense. Our way of thinking is much higher. We know much more. We know better how things work. That's not how it works. I must have to do something. There must be something I have to do in order to earn it. Right? 
And the whole world believes this. There must be something I have to do so that my good works outweigh my bad ones and he'll be pleased with me. There's got to be something, right? Because we know better than God does. Our thoughts are higher than his thoughts, right? I mean, that's the way that we think as human beings. We are the high-thinking ones. See, the issue here is not that we think higher than God. The issue is our thoughts are lower. We want to look at what God is saying here. God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And we say that's foolishness. We say, that's just childish. I mean, that's just like imaginary, you know? If a kid were making up the story, he might think of that, but not us. Surely we're too sophisticated to believe that, that God would actually offer forgiveness at no cost, that God would say, come and buy wine and milk and, 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 and water at no money, no price. Because, see, we know better than that, right? We know that nothing is free, that everything has to be paid for, that you can't buy things without money. We know this to be true. Every part of the experience of our life tells us this is true. And we read in Isaiah 55, and God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I know you think you know it all. You think you've got it figured out, but let me tell you something. If you're thirsty, just come. You don't have to bring money. You don't have to have money. It's already been paid for. Just come. But in our minds, we look at this and we say, no, 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 God, God's being foolish here. The truth is God's thoughts are higher. They're not lower than yours. They seem mysterious to us. But they're not Mysterious because they defy reason. Why are God's thoughts mysterious? Well, he tells us here. Because his thoughts and ways are divine. They're not human. Well, Genesis does tell us that God made man in his own image. After his likeness. But that doesn't mean that God is like men. It doesn't mean we can compare ourselves favorably to God. In fact, if you were to read Isaiah 40 to 55, you would see numerous times you would hear God saying things like this, I am the Lord and there is no other. God is unique. There is no one like Him. He is distinct from all of His creation. And yet, Isaiah illustrates this point by pointing to the creation, right? As the heavens are high, higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, God says. No one would confuse the heavens and the earth, right? There's a huge difference. Let me explain it to you. It's really, really complicated here. The heavens are high. The earth is low. Y'all got that? Okay. God's thoughts are high. Yours are low. It's really that simple. You are not the standard 
of reason and logic. God is. And God's reasoning is much higher than yours. Now, we like to refer to this verse to avoid explaining all sorts of things that are difficult to us. <laughs> things like the Trinity and God's sovereignty and where babies come from. And we don't like to explain those things, so we just say God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we can't understand those things anyway. But in the context, that's not really a right use of application of this verse and this principle. It's very clear in Isaiah 55 what he's talking about. The Lord invites the wicked to forsake his way. He invites the unrighteous man to forsake his thoughts and to return to him so he can have mercy and pardon. How can anyone believe this? That's the issue. But it's interesting, F.C. Jennings says that this plan could not be made up by a careless man because it's too intricate in all of its details. And he says, this eliminates the greater part of mankind, for are not the majority careless? But what about a proud man? Maybe a, a very intelligent and meticulous proud man could come up with this plan. But, but Jennings says, no, 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 that wouldn't work either. Because this plan humbles him to nothing telling him that he is ungodly and without strength. Surely the proud man would have to become humble in order to conceive of such a plan of salvation. Okay, well, if the proud man is out and if the careless man is out, then what's left? Well, what about the humble man, the man who's poor in spirit? The man who confesses that he's a sinner? Couldn't he imagine this plan of salvation? And Jennings says, no, How could the, the humble man, how could he imagine a plan where God the Father would give up his own dear and precious Son to bear the sins of the wretched sinner? Jennings says, how proud, how blasphemously proud would such a one be? He must have ceased to be humble to have invented it. So if the careless, if the proud, if the humble are all excluded, then it must have come from God himself. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying. This plan came from God. This glorious message of the gospel that sinners may be forgiven because the Father poured out his wrath on his Son is so far above our human thinking that we couldn't even dream of it apart from the Lord revealing it to us. And that's where verses 10 and 11 come in. Because God's word comes down from heaven like the rain. And it waters the earth and it causes it to sprout and to, broad and to bud and to bring forth fruit in abundance. So that there's more than enough to satisfy our hunger and to supply the seed for the next generation. How would you know about the mercy of God that abundantly pardons when you forsake your wicked way and return to the Lord if it was not for His Word that was sent? How would you know about God's plan to redeem Israel, to set them up as a beacon for the nations if it wasn't for His Word that came forth from His own mouth? 
How would you know about the invitation to life, to joy, and to blessing at no cost to you if it wasn't for God's word that was sent to accomplish that very task? The truth is that God's word reveals his thoughts and his ways to us. God's word reveals to us his thoughts and his ways. Now there's a lot more that we could say about God's word from Isaiah 55 and verse 11, but I think it's enough to note what we've already said. God's word reveals to us his thoughts and his plans concerning the salvation that he offers us in Jesus Christ. And that as an unbelievable as it may seem that God should love us in our wicked rebellion, that is exactly what the Scripture teaches. This is the purpose for which God sent His Word. To bring life to the dead. Ultimately, to bring joy and peace throughout the whole world. The last two verses of this chapter are really describing what will take place when Christ returns to set up his kingdom and to rule and reign on the earth, fulfilling the, the sure mercies of David that are referenced earlier in the chapter. The curse that God pronounced in the Garden of Eden will be removed and the whole creation will enjoy the blessings of God. And so the fact of the matter is that the work of God and the word uh, and the work of his word are not yet complete. It's true that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He has died for our sins. That He did rise again for our justification. But we still await His return in glory to establish His kingdom on the earth. To rule from David's throne according to the sure mercies of David that Isaiah mentioned in verse 3. And so the Word of God is still at work calling men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, all who are thirsty, to come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is why the Word of God is so important here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Because the Word of God has transformed each of us who has believed. If you've believed the Lord's promise of mercy and pardon, then you who were a, 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 a condemned man or woman, you sought out the executioner because you believed that he had a pardon for you. And he did. That's the gospel. That's the truth that we've believed. That's why this matters to us. Although we are wicked, although we are unworthy, we've come to hate our sin and to cling desperately to the one who's borne our sins in his own body on the tree. Why? Because we heard his invitation, come. And so we talk about our core values. And we said that our first core value was God-centered worship. We know who God is. We know what it means to worship Him because we have read and studied His Word. 
right? We talk about our second core value of spirit-controlled living. Well, how do we do that? How do we walk in the spirit? We talked about this last week. By knowing, by believing, and doing the word of God. And so it's appropriate that our third core value here in this church is word-focused teaching. Because if you're going to know the Lord, if you're going to know who He is, how to worship Him, how to walk according to the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of your flesh, then you're going to have to learn and believe and obey His Word. And so, as a church, we want our services, we want our activities, our ministries, our prayers, and even our conversations to be focused on inviting all you who are thirsty to come and drink of the water of life. To come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. To seek the Lord while He may be found. To call on Him while He is near. To forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts. To return to the Lord for mercy and pardon. And we do that by making His Word the focus of all of our teaching, our preaching, our singing, our praying, and even our conversations before and after and during the service. That's why we have children's Sunday school. That's why we have adult Bible study every Sunday morning at 9.30. Why? So we can teach systematically through the Scriptures and make it understandable to every person who truly wants to know what God says. That's why we do these things. Because the Word of God is central to our ministry and to who we are because we have heard the invitation in the Word. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Do you have a hard time believing that it could be that simple? That you can have eternal life? That you can have complete pardon at no cost to you based solely on the work of Jesus Christ? Well, if you're struggling with that, then let me encourage you to read the Word of God. To meditate on the Word of God day and night. To beg God to show you the truth. To beg Him to, to, to meet with you in His Word to show you what is true and you would know it. Don't give up until you have absolute certainty that the offer is legitimate. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let's pray.